Chapter 8 of The People of the Black Circle by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The People of the Black Circle. Chapter 8 Yasmina Knows Stark Terror. Yasmina had time but for one scream when she felt herself enveloped in that crimson whirl and torn from her protector with appalling force. She screamed once, and then she had no breath to scream. She was blinded, deafened, rendered mute and eventually senseless by the terrific rushing of the air about her. There was a dazed consciousness of dizzy height and numbing speed, a confused impression of natural sensations gone mad, and then vertigo and oblivion. A vestige of these sensations clung to her as she recovered consciousness. So she cried out and clutched wildly as though to stay a headlong and involuntary flight. Her fingers closed on soft fabric, and a relieving sense of stability pervaded her. She took cognizance of her surroundings. She was lying on a dais covered with black velvet. This dais stood in a great, dim room, whose walls were hung with dusky tapestries across which crawled dragons reproduced with repellent realism. Floating shadows merely hinted at the lofty ceiling, and gloom that lent itself to illusion lurked in the corners. There seemed to be neither windows nor doors in the walls, or else they were concealed by the nighted tapestries. Where the dim light came from, Yasmina could not determine. The great room was a realm of mysteries, or shadows, and shadowy shapes in which she could not have sworn to observe movement yet which invaded her mind with a dim and formless terror. But her gaze fixed itself on a tangible object. On another smaller dais of jet, a few feet away, a man sat cross-legged, gazing contemplatively at her. His long black velvet robe, embroidered with gold thread, fell loosely about him, masking his figure. His hands were folded in his sleeves there was a velvet cap upon his head. His face was calm, placid, not unhandsome, his eyes lambent and slightly oblique. He did not move a muscle as he sat regarding her, nor did his expression alter when he saw she was conscious. Yasmina felt fear crawl like a trickle of ice-water down her supple spine. She lifted herself on her elbows and stared apprehensively at the stranger. "'Who are you?' she demanded. Her voice sounded brittle and inadequate. "'I am the master of Yimsha.' The tone was rich and resonant, like the mellow tones of a temple bell. "'Why did you bring me here?' she demanded. "'You were not seeking me?' If you are one of the black seers, yes," she answered recklessly, believing that he could read her thoughts anyway. He laughed softly, and chills crawled up and down her spine again. You would turn the wild children of the hills against the seers of Yimsha. He smiled. I have read it in your mind, princess, your weak, human mind, filled with petty dreams of hate and revenge. You slew my brother!" A rising tide of anger was vying with her fear. Her hands were clenched, 
her lithe body rigid. "'Why did you persecute him? He never harmed you. The priests say the seers are above meddling in human affairs. Why did you destroy the King of Vendia?' "'How can an ordinary human understand the motives of a seer?' returned the master calmly. "'My acolytes in the temples of Turan, who are the priests behind the priests of Tarim, urged me to bestir myself in behalf of Yezdegerd. For reasons of my own, I complied. How can I explain my mystic reasons to your puny intellect? You could not understand. I understand this, that my brother died!" Tears of grief and rage shook in her voice. She rose upon her knees and stared at him with wide blazing eyes as supple and dangerous in that moment as a she-panther. "'As Yezdegur desired,' agreed the master calmly. For a while it was my whim to further his ambitions. "'Is Yezdegur your vassal?' Yasmina tried to keep the timbre of her voice unaltered. She had felt her knee pressing something hard and symmetrical under a fold of velvet. Subtly she shifted her position, moving her hand under the fold. "'Is the dog that licks up the offal in the temple yard the vassal of the god?' returned the master. He did not seem to notice the actions she sought to dissemble. Concealed by the velvet, her fingers closed on what she knew was the golden hilt of a dagger. She bent her head to hide the light of triumph in her eyes. I am weary of Yezdegerd, said the master. I have turned to other amusements. Ha! With a fierce cry, Yasmina sprang like a jungle cat, stabbing murderously. Then she stumbled and slid to the floor, where she cowered, staring up at the man on the dais. He had not moved. His cryptic smile was unchanged. Tremblingly she lifted her hand and stared at it with dilated eyes. There was no dagger in her fingers. They grasped a stalk of golden lotus, the crushed blossoms drooping on the bruised stem. She dropped it as if it had been a viper, and scrambled away from the proximity of her tormentor. She returned to her own dais, because that was at least more dignified for a queen than groveling on the floor at the feet of a sorcerer, and eyed him apprehensively, expecting reprisals. But the master made no move. "'All substance is one to him who holds the key of the cosmos,' he said cryptically. "'To an adept nothing is immutable. At will, steel blossoms bloom in unnamed gardens, or flower-swords flash in the moonlight. "'You are a devil!' she sobbed. "'Not I,' he laughed. "'I was born on this planet long ago. Once I was a common man, nor have I lost all human attributes in the numberless eons of my adeptship. A human steeped in the dark arts is greater than a devil. I am of human origin, but I rule demons. You have seen the lords of the Black Circle. It would blast your soul to hear from what far realm I summon them, and from what doom I guard them with ensorcelled crystal and golden serpents. But only I can rule them. 
My foolish Kemsa thought to make himself great. Poor fool! Bursting material doors, and hurtling himself and his mistress through the air from hill to hill. Yet if he had not been destroyed, his power might have grown to rival mine. He laughed again. And you, poor silly thing, plotting to send a hairy hill-chief to storm Yimsha. It was such a jest that I myself could have designed, had it occurred to me, that you should fall in his hands. And I read in your childish mind an intention to seduce by your feminine wiles to attempt your purpose anyway. But for all your stupidity you are a woman fair to look upon. It is my whim to keep you for my slave." The daughter of a thousand proud emperors gasped with shame and fury at the word. "'You dare not!' His mocking laughter cut her like a whip across her naked shoulders. "'The king dares not trample a worm in the road? Little fool, do you not realize that your royal pride is no more than a straw blown on the wind? I, who have known the kisses of the queens of hell, you have seen how I deal with a rebel." Cowed and awed, the girl crouched on the velvet-covered dais. The light grew dimmer and more phantom-like. The features of the master became shadowy. His voice took on a newer tone of command. "'I will never yield to you!' Her voice trembled with fear, but it carried a ring of resolution. "'You will yield.' he answered with horrible conviction. Fear and pain shall teach you. I will lash you with horror and agony to the last quivering ounce of your endurance, until you become as melted wax to be bent and moulded in my hands as I desire. You shall know such discipline as no mortal woman ever knew, until my slightest command is to you as the unalterable will of the gods and first, to humble your pride, you shall travel back through the lost ages and view all the shapes that have been you. Ai, ye la cosa! At these words the shadowy room swam before Yasmina's affrighted gaze. The roots of her hair prickled her scalp, and her tongue clove to her palate. Somewhere a gong sounded a deep, ominous note. The dragons on the tapestries glowed like blue fire, and then faded out. The master on his dais was but a shapeless shadow. The dim light gave way to soft, thick darkness, almost tangible, that pulsed with strange radiations. She could no longer see the master. She could see nothing. She had a strange sensation that the walls and ceiling had withdrawn immensely from her. Then somewhere in the darkness a glow began, like a firefly that rhythmically dimmed and quickened. It grew to a golden ball, and as it expanded its light grew more intense, flaming whitely. It burst suddenly, showering the darkness with white sparks that did not illumine the shadows. But like an impression left in the gloom a faint luminance remained and revealed a slender dusky shaft shooting up from the shadowy floor. Under the girl's dilated gaze it spread, 
took shape. Stems and broad leaves appeared, and great black poisonous blossoms that towered above her as she cringed against the velvet. A subtle perfume pervaded the atmosphere. It was the dread figure of the black lotus that had grown up as she watched, and as it grows in the haunted, forbidden jungles of Kitai. The broad leaves were murmurous with evil life. The blossoms bent toward her like sentient things, nodding serpent-like on pliant stems. Etched against soft, impenetrable darkness it loomed over her, gigantic, blackly visible in some mad way. Her brain reeled with the drugging scent, and she sought to crawl from the dais. Then she clung to it, as it seemed to be pitching at an impossible slant. She cried out with terror and clung to the velvet, but she felt her fingers ruthlessly torn away. There was a sensation as of all sanity and stability crumbling and vanishing. She was a quivering atom of sentiency driven through a black, roaring, icy void by a thundering wind that threatened to extinguish her feeble flicker of animate life like a candle blown out in a storm. Then there came a period of blind impulse and movement, and when the atom that was she mingled and merged with myriad other atoms of spawning life in the yeasty morass of existence, molded by formative forces until she emerged again a conscious individual, whirling down an endless spiral of lives. In a mist of terror she relived all her former existences recognized and was again all the bodies that had carried her ego throughout the changing ages. She bruised her feet again over the long, weary road of life that stretched out behind her into the immemorial past. Back beyond the dimmest dawns of time she crouched shuddering in primordial jungles, hunted by slavering beasts of prey. Skin-clad she waded thigh-deep in rice-swamps, battling with squawking waterfowl for the precious grains. She labored with the oxen to drag the pointed stick through the stubborn soil, and she crouched endlessly over looms in peasant huts. She saw walled cities burst into flame, and fled screaming before the slayers. She reeled naked and bleeding over burning sands, dragged at the slaver's stirrup and she knew the grip of hot, fierce hands on her writhing flesh, and the shame and agony of brutal lust. She screamed under the bite of the lash, and moaned on the rack. Mad with terror, she fought against the hands that forced her head inexorably down on the bloody block. She knew the agonies of childbirth, and the bitterness of love betrayed. She suffered all the woes and wrongs and brutalities that man has inflicted on woman throughout the eons, and she endured all the spite and malice of women for woman. And like the flick of a fiery whip, throughout was the consciousness she retained of her deviceship. She was all the women she had ever been, yet in her knowing she was Yasmina. This consciousness was not lost in the throes of reincarnation. At one and the same time she was a naked slave-wench groveling under the whip, and the proud Devi of Vendia. And she suffered not only as the slave-girl suffered, but as Yasmina, to whose pride the whip was like a white-hot brand. 
Life merged into life in flying chaos, each with its own burden of woe and shame and agony, until she dimly heard her own voice screaming unbearably, like one long-drawn cry of suffering echoing down the ages. Then she awakened on the velvet-covered dais in the mystic room. In a ghostly gray light she saw again the dais and the cryptic-robed figure seated upon it. The hooded head was bent, the high shoulders faintly etched against the uncertain dimness. She could make out no details clearly, but the hood, where the velvet cap had been, stirred a formless uneasiness in her. As she stared, there stole over her a nameless fear that froze her tongue to her palate a feeling that it was not the master who sat so silently on that black dais. Then the figure moved and rose upright, towering above her. It stooped over her, and the long arms in their wide black sleeves bent about her. She fought against them in speechless fright, surprised by their lean hardness. The hooded head bent down toward her averted face and she screamed, and screamed again in poignant fear and loathing. Bony arms gripped her lithe body, and from that hood looked forth a countenance of death and decay, features like rotting parchment on a moldering skull. She screamed again, and then, as those champing, grinning jaws bent toward her lips, she lost consciousness. End of chapter 8